Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox and welcome to this episode of Everything Compliance, where together with four of the top compliance practitioners and commentators uh, that I know of, we take a look at uh, Everything Compliance. We of course are joined by Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance, uh, today who happens to be in the former land of the uh, free uh, United States, he's in New York. <laughs> we have Matt Kelly, uh, founder of Radical Compliance from Boston. We have uh, Mr. Translations himself, Jerry Rosen, um, and we have Mike Volkoff, hey, the founder of the Volkoff Law Firm, and as you just heard, Mike just joined us. So with that, I thought today we would take a one-episode deep dive into the Rolls-Royce case. Uh, it was just came out a couple of weeks ago, a incredible case to start 2017 with. Uh, all of us have been written about Rolls-Royce, and so we're going to take it from uh, our own uh, unique uh, angles. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Jonathan, as our UK commentator, will set the table and really talk about it from the UK uh, perspective, the DPA, and, and what it might mean for the serious fraud office. Jay Rosen is going to follow by talking about the resolution documents, and then what companies who've done business with Rolls-Royce or are even in the same industry might do now to protect themselves. Mike Volkoff is going to talk to us about what do all these settlement documents mean? Does it mean to have DPAs in separate countries? And then what happens or how does a company that had a systemic uh, bribery scheme for as long as Rolls-Royce did actually make enough of a comeback uh, that they could uh, get a DPA in both the United Kingdom and in uh, the United States. Then Matt Kelly's going to bring us home today, and Matt's going to really t consider the global implications of the settlement. So, gentlemen, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. And, uh, Jonathan, why don't you set the table for us from the UK perspective? Yes, happy to, Tom. And it's important, to, I think, to say that whilst this involves a UK corporation, of course, I think it's very much a global case. I'll talk about that in a minute. And it's not uh, immune from the events that are happening in the US. The judge in his judgment made it clear that he had rushed through the hearings which are needed in our uh, deferred prosecution agreement process in the UK, that they had been rushed through at the request of the parties because of the uncertainty as to what an incoming Trump administration might do to settlements like this. And it really was quite an accelerated timetable as a result. Now, there's a very detailed statement of facts that uh, outlines the whole case. But uh, to summarize that in brief, the case starts in early 2012 when the SFO discovers some internet postings. They relate just at that time to China and Indonesia, and they share them to Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce then uh, in, is involved in a very large uh, internal investigation. It uh, has cost them a considerable amount of money, north of 100 million sterling, and they widened the investigation beyond China and Indonesia to look at conduct in a whole host of other countries, including Thailand, India, Russia, Nigeria, Kazakhstan, Brazil, Azerbaijan, Angola, Iraq, and Malaysia, I guess most of which companies in 
uh, inhabit the bottom of the Transparency International uh, Index that was also out yesterday. Um, the SFO also got involved parallel to the internal investigation and they got cooperation, particularly from Austria, Germany, the Netherlands, Singapore and Turkey. And then we have this tripartite deal that Rolls-Royce get effectively with the UK, the US and Brazil. Now, I guess one of the first things to say is obviously the amount of the agreed payments is really substantial, around 497 million sterling, uh, plus costs to the UK authorities, $167 million to the US, about $25 million to Brazil. Um, agents are a key feature. I know Jay's going to talk about it. Many agents investigated, 88 suspended as a result of the investigation. It's important to remember that the DPA has been done by Rolls-Royce, but that doesn't protect individuals involved. Around about 11 individuals at Rolls-Royce have left the organization. And in addition, many well-connected uh, agents and intermediaries are under suspicion, as well as those that received the bribe. And remember that under UK bribery law, it is not better to give than to receive. Both are uh, equally uh, liable to prosecution. And in addition, we've seen, and, and, and I think others are going to talk about this, the launch of consequential inquiries, particularly in Asia, that are pinning the finger of blame at some of the individuals whose details are uh, pseudonymized in the court documents. Um, some of the other key features I think that are interesting to me, I'm a block away from the W Hotel in Times Square at the moment. I hope I'm not in a lavish hotel because apparently the W Hotel in Times Square is one. And we had all this debate prior to the Bribery Act coming in about the appetite to prosecute things like gifts and hospitality. Uh, this is one of the features of this case uh, involving an MBA program put on by a uh, U.S. university, which involved uh, some of the teaching, I'm adding inverted commas, being done in the Peter Luger Steakhouse in New York, and some of it at the Woodbury Common Outlet Mall. Um, that uh, program cost Rolls-Royce about uh, three million U.S. dollars, including a Chinese travel agent receiving a hundred thousand U.S. dollars for evening entertainment during what seemed to be just a two-week MBA program. Uh, case also tells us, I think, that gifts are in scope. So the, the corrupt conduct, for example, includes two Rolls-Royce branded watches. Uh, it's important to mark, I think, at this point, the clear distinction between Rolls-Royce, the car company, and Rolls-Royce, this Rolls-Royce, the aero engine, industrial power, etc. group. Two separate entities. And there's been some misinformed speculation about Rolls-Royce, the car group being involved. That isn't the case. Although, coincidentally, some of the gifts were branded as car company products. And, and indeed, a car was one of the gifts. Um, the uh, investigation was... John, yeah, sorry, Tom. Stop you there. Even in today's Guardian, there was an article about Rolls-Royce that had a picture of the car in it. So if... The UK newspapers are confused. Uh, what does that say about the rest of the world in terms of the name? 
I think it is confusing, and, and I guess if you're the uh, if you're the owner of the Rolls Royce car brand, um, and you've paid good value for it, then um, then presumably you're going to be a little bit annoyed at the moment, aren't you? Um, I mean, it seems to me that um, that that it is a you know source of some confusion, and and if I were BMW who who owned the brand, then then I might want to be uh, making it clear that these acts uh, aren't to, to be laid at my door. Absolutely. So sorry, um, I'm struck by that analogy. Yeah, and then one other. Um, I, I mean, I think I think you're right that there are a thousand and one different things we could talk about. But one just for the basic introduction that that really interests me, I think, is this is certainly a huge investigation in terms of the amount of documents that are sweated as well. So 229 internal investigation interviews, 250 third-party relationships reviewed, uh, the email accounts of 100 current or former employees were handed over to the SFO without asserting privilege, with an agreement that privilege would be determined by an independent lawyer. And this led to an investigation, uh, digital examination of more than 30 million documents. Now, I think we talked just before uh, the uh, holidays about the conversation I'd had with David Green about his new supercomputer and acquiring two uh, petabytes of data to sweat in that supercomputer. And it'd be interesting to know how many of his two petabytes came from Rolls-Royce, and if indeed that's in addition to the big pot of data he'd already collected. And there's quite an interesting undertaking, effectively, that's reflected in the judgment that Rolls-Royce say that they will keep all of the documents collected within the UK jurisdiction, presumably to avoid any data privacy, data export, spoilation-type arguments, and they'll make that available for subsequent prosecutions as directed by the SFO. So, as I say, there's, we could probably touch on about another 10 things that I think are significant in the case, but I wonder if that's a good start, Tom. It is an excellent start, and I thought maybe uh, at this point we might uh, throw it open to uh, the rest of the roundtable to see if they had any questions of Jonathan from uh, from the UK perspective. Uh, Jonathan, I do have one question. How much is this a big, I guess, publicity victory for the SFO? Because they're always on the back foot about, do they have funding? Will they be taken seriously? I mean, this seems like a mighty nice feather for the director, David Green, to have this cap, but how true is that? I think you're absolutely right, Mike. Um, uh, as I say, I was at an event he was at just before Christmas. He did seem to me to look uh, happier than when I've seen him on other occasions. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. Um, maybe it was just the holidays. But this is a great win, I think, for him, given particularly Theresa May's, um, <clears throat> let's just say, um, lack of enthusiasm in the SFO. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, I understand that last night David Green said that he did not intend to renew his term 
So he'd be going by the end of April 2018. He said that we could expect more DPAs imminently. And obviously, uh, he's trying to wrap up most of his big cases before the end of 2018. So that will have implications for other corporations like Alstom, Airbus, Tesco, GSK, who are under investigation. And I think that this is definitely a fillip for the SFO. And it will be a confidence boost. Absolutely right, Mike. <laughs> Jonathan, I wanted to ask you about the judges, a couple of the judges' comments. First of all, in not even really oblique language, he was highly critical of the very senior executive level of Rolls-Royce. Now, he didn't name any names, but he did say... Uh, quite clearly senior level executives. The second thing was he um, really gave, I thought, one of the most detailed and thoughtful analyses of why it is not in the interests of either the British government or indeed uh, the British people to, to put a company such as Rolls-Royce out of business. And that it, it's very important to the British uh, military very important to the British government, very important, obviously, to the workers, not just at Rolls-Royce, but all through up and down the supply chain and even the towns where Rolls-Royce has facilities. And that sometimes I don't think is, is really articulated as well in the United States regarding uh, one of the useful aspects of a deferred prosecution agreement. What are your thoughts on those two points? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting aspect as well, Tom. I, I declare an interest in that I live in Derbyshire where the majority of Rolls-Royce's employees, I guess, in the UK uh, reside. And, and it is definitely uh, important locally, you know, where I live, Rolls-Royce is an iconic business. It's the one that any kid who's interested in engineering dreams to work at Rolls-Royce, and they do great outreach work into the, into the community. I think it's a very thoughtful judgment um, uh, particularly given the time constraints that the judge was under. The judge, obviously, Sir Brian Levinson has the advantage that he was the judge in the two other uh, DPA cases, uh, Standard Bank XYZ, XYZ. So he knew the law about uh, around it. And obviously, he had assistance from the lead uh, prosecution counsel for the SFO, uh, Sir Edward Garnier QC, who, when he was in government, had brought the DPA system in. So it, it is sort of, um, you know, people who've been round the block insofar as anyone has on DPAs. But it's a very thoughtful judgment. And to produce, you know, whatever it is, I guess, 144 paragraphs uh, outlining his reasoning and also to append all of the calculations which show how the amount is arrived at, I think is an extraordinarily thorough piece of work, as I say, given the time constraints that, that everyone was under in this case. Well, Jay Rosen, could we perhaps turn to you and uh, what were your some of your uh, initial thoughts in uh, reading these materials? Thanks, Tom. Um, one of the things I'd like to do is uh, springboard off a, a post of yours from uh, earlier this week. And you had tweeted in uh, part four of your blog on the Rolls-Royce enforcement action that Rolls-Royce confirms anti-corruption enforcement has gone international. 
and as a CCO, I would be ready. So I'd like to take a look at this global piece, um, specifically the bribery schemes in the different jurisdictions that were sanctioned by the DOJ, SFO, and I'll probably butcher this, but the Brazilian Ministerio Publico Federal, the MPF. And um, before we kind of drill down into the countries involved, uh, we need to lay out the divisions that were uh, accused of conducting this bribery. And to um, both Jonathan and your point earlier, the misconception is that this has nothing to do with the automobile brand, but there were four different divisions of Rolls-Royce that were affected. There was civil aerospace, which in the documents is known as civil, the defense aerospace business, which is defense. Then there's Rolls-Royce Energy Systems Incorporated, which is abbreviated as RRESI. And then there was also a marine division that they looked at and the um, SFO decided that there was not enough evidence against the marine division to continue uh, to prosecute them. So uh, most of all of the DOJ actions resulted from the um, Rolls-Royce energy system and those locales where uh, things happened were Thailand uh, and Brazil. And uh, guess who was involved in the scheme in Brazil? If you said Petrobras, <laughs> you're definitely right. Uh, Kazakhstan, former part of the uh, Soviet Union, Azerbaijan, Angola, and Iraq. So while the SFO actions resulted uh, mostly from the civil division, there was also a single defense infraction and three energy schemes thrown in for good measure. So if we look at the com companies, rather, the countries where Rolls-Royce had issues under the SFO, uh, civil issues in China, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. So we're talking the Far East there. Uh, the loan defense issue in India, and then the energies issues in Indonesia, Nigeria, and Russia. So uh, the global corruption enforcement action here really uh, points up to the changing nature of the international fight against bribery and corruption. And regulators have now moved past simple cooperation in this matter it's a real good investigation about how they've worked together and actually um, you know, collaborated on the enforcement part. Um, to take a quote that's been out there, assistant director in charge of the FBI's Washington field office, Paul Abate, if I'm saying that correctly, says in the DOJ press release, this successful parallel investigation is a tremendous example of the central importance of working cooperatively alongside our international partners to achieve a fair and meaningful resolution. This outcome reflects the immense reach and capability of the FBI's Washington Field Office International Corruption Squad and the global impact of the anti-corruption program. Uh, further, in addition to the work of the SFO and the MPF, uh, as Jonathan noted earlier, Austria, Germany, Netherlands, Singapore, and Turkey provided significant uh, assistance to the DOJ. Um, I don't want to get into the minutia of the charging documents or the statement of facts, but um, it's pretty much safe to say that as you go by uh, jurisdiction uh, to jurisdiction, you'll see that there are uh, influences of uh, 
you know, just outright bribery, dealing with third parties, dealing with people in the government. So, um, you know, it's it, it gets to be a bit monotonous after you read the charging documents. But you can see that uh, over this long time period, uh, the management uh, definitely turned a blind eye to what was happening. Uh, getting back to the aspect of global corruption, um, for those of us, myself included, who worry about the United States' commitment to fighting global corruption under a DOJ now that will be led by Attorney General Sessions, I think we can hopefully count on our global anti-corruption partners to pick up the anti-corruption mantle. And even if we see the DOJ and the SEC resources uh, becoming constrained in the, in the future months, that we've uh, kind of started a global fire. Um, next, I'd like to consider the second part of Tom's tweet. And he asked, if you're the COO of a company, and I'm adding whether you're in the US or the UK or anyone else in the world, and you find out that your company did business with Rolls-Royce, what's your next step? Mm. So if I was that CCO of an aerospace company, either civil or defense, I would go back over my bidding procedures and take a look at my salespeople and any intermediaries or third-party agents who are involved in any tender processes involving Rolls-Royce or in the jurisdiction where Rolls-Royce admitted to the above bribery schemes. And I'd ask the following questions. How were these agents compensated? Did their compensation raise any red flags internally? Were improper payments made? Were all commissions properly vetted and signed on uh, and signed off by the appropriate members of your organization? Next, I would investigate the third parties that I'd work with. And do any of these people still work for your company? Have they worked on any other bids? Have they been involved on tender offers with other products in the same geographies? Did you perform adequate due diligence on these business relationships the first time? And even if you did, might it be time to update that diligence? If you notice how FCPA and other enforcement matters seem to evolve, there are certain industries that historically come under scrutiny, namely the energy sector, pharmaceutical and life sciences, and the defense contractors, to name a few. It is no coincidence that as soon as Volkswagen recently settled its defeat device issues with U.S. authorities, that Fiat Chrysler was subpoenaed on a similar charge. So if you extrapolate this thinking forward, and if you are a defense contractor, not necessarily in aerospace, but in a related field, and you have done business in either in the countries that Rolls-Royce has, or if you've worked with Rolls-Royce as a bidding partner, then as Ricky Ricardo used to say to Lucille Ball, Lucy, I think you've got some explaining to do. Somebody obviously agrees with you, Jay. Yeah, that was, that was Latka giving his support to my, uh, to my Ricky Ricardo impersonation. Tom, I, th I think Jay makes a really good point. And, and the other thing I might just add to that is these offences, some of the offences predate the bribery act coming into force in 2011, but some post-dated. And it could be the case that some of the other companies involved have almost got bigger problems. Why? Because even though there is criticism of some of the training at Rolls-Royce, it being you know, sporadic and not thought through at times, at least there was training. And my experience is 
that many of the corporations that employ people in procurement do no training for procurement guys at all. They're very FCPA focused on you know, the giving elements rather than Bribery Act focused on receiving. So I would be astonished if we don't see some consequential action against some of the organizations that have bought this kit. Jonathan, uh, Jay detailed a, a pretty good list of things companies should do, but in the United Kingdom, there's an additional obligation on the board uh, beyond what Jay has articulated that a CCO should consider, and that is that what steps have, has a board taken uh, to prevent bribery? So how would uh, uh, you maybe suggest a board uh, start to look at these things separate and apart from Jay's uh, very excellent list for a CCO? It, it must be a standing item on the agenda of every board. It, even if it's a standing item on the board and they say nothing to report, I think it has to be something that every board meeting discusses. All of the people on the board need training to spot the risks. You know, we've talked about the Braid case before the holidays where there's this uh, additional consequence for executives who don't do that. And it's important to remember that, you know, this Section 7 offence, which is a feature of this case, is, is a failure to prevent. It's not, you don't have to have knowledge, I think, if, you, if your processes aren't correct, if an act of bribery occurs. And I think your earlier point was, was well taken uh, insofar as distinguishing between employees of the business and senior employees. These two terms appear throughout the statement of facts and the judgment. And the judge has been careful to identify where he thinks that senior employees are involved. And of course, there are rumors of some of those individuals, although they're not directly identified in the judgment as to who they might be and the heat that they are likely to feel. So I think this is a case where the SFO would like to press on for convictions of individuals as well. Uh, hey, uh, this is Mike, uh, Jonathan. I, I wanted to ask you, because that raises the interesting question about individual liability of culpable officials here. I mean, do you see that, uh, you know, we, unfortunately, the pattern in the U.S. has been corporate settlement uh, and really not many follow-on individual prosecutions. Uh, do you think there's a chance that the SFO will bring a case against any of the individuals in this case, in, in, the, in this matter, given with the company's cooperation, I'm sure? Yeah, I think it's always a challenge, isn't it? The, uh, the, the track record of, I think, all bribery prosecutors is, is not bad against corporations, mostly because they settle, but isn't great against individuals. But I think there will be pressure to look at some of the individuals here. And I think in some respects, the thing to my mind that makes it more interesting is this 30, this pot of 30 million documents and the fact that e-discovery techniques, you know, have got better uh, in, 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 in the last few years with things like semantic search and so on. So it seems to me that um, that I think the chances of an individual prosecution are better. I think it's instructive that um, the statement of fact does show awareness on behalf of some employees 
And there is a direct quote, for example, from one of the emails that's discovered. Um, this involves the Russian bribery, where one employee uh, says, uh, 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 I told the Rolls-Royce employee in Russia on Monday, I do not want to see any of this stuff appearing in an email in future. If he does it again, I'll bring him back to London so we can give him a face-to-face -face scrubbing. And there are also other emails, I think, where the parties to the email are, are agreeing to switch to telephone and others where they're agreeing to switch to BlackBerry Messenger instead, uh, presumably because they think that they are both ways of evading detection. So uh, I, I guess if I'm, you know, the Sherlock Holmes of the SFO, uh, my, my plus here is that I've got quite a lot of evidence to uh, try and get a personal prosecution. And I've also got uh, things like emails, which are linking things together, but also giving me evidence of knowledge. You know, I, I, I guess you don't offer somebody a face-to-face -face scrubbing un un unless you think he's doing, doing the wrong thing and, and you want to hide it. Well, I think it's going to be interesting if they do uh, bring individual cases. I don't expect the U.S. obviously to do that, but it would certainly be the SFO's, you know, province uh, to resolve the case that way. So, Mike, bear in mind, Mike, of course, as well that that after the original whistleblower came forward, or, or the original uh, internet poster, a number of former employees have also forward uh, some of those have talked to the BBC so e even 30 million documents might not be the end of it it might be that other former employees have have documentation and evidence as well the, the other thing I was going to the other point I was going to say is that what I and, and I, I I know that we owe our livelihoods and our country to the Brits but the Brits have certainly with the writing by the judge, or with the the you know the sort of reaction of the judge and the, and the factors that are laid out by the um, you know by the SFO, I thought it was really great to see sort of the transparency of the thinking. Um, and to me, it's a model for how the U.S. should be doing DPAs if they're going to do them anymore under the new Attorney General. But, um, and I think if by doing that, they really give great guidance to people in terms of understanding what cooperation means, what the range of alternatives is. And it's just a much more transparent system in the end, I think. I, I think that's my thing. I, I, you know, I, I read a whole bunch of documents on the plane over here. And and I'm I'm literally conflicted. You know, you read some of the facts, and you're ashamed of your country, and you, and you read the way in which the court has dealt with it, and Rolls Royce to an extent, and the SFO to an extent, in a very transparent way, and it sort of tempers your shame with an element of pride that that, that you know that at least these issues have got out into the open and and are being dealt with appropriately. Oh, you really need to get over that. In Texas, we're proud of all our crimes and our criminals. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're the greatest yeah, that, in Texas. 
So, uh, Mike, um, before you give your thoughts, uh, Jay asked if you could articulate for uh, the audience what's the difference in the settlement resolutions the DOJ and SEC use. So we've talked about the DPA, but what's the difference in a DPA, an NPA, a declination, and any of the other settlement documents you've seen in the FCPA world? Well, at least on our side here in the uh, pond, uh, we have, there are several. One alternative that the Justice Department have has is a non-prosecution agreement, which is entirely uh, never filed with the court nor subject to the court. It's, uh, prosecutors have the ability to and are authorized to enter into non-prosecution agreements with individuals, with companies, uh, and lay out certain conditions. So we have that. We then have what is called the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, or the DPA, where we file uh, an, an information, the government files an information with the court uh, and sets out, let's say, a charge, and the prosecution is deferred during a three-year period, usually. And in that case, um, if there's anything that goes wrong or they violate the deferred prosecution agreement, uh, the court has, uh, or the government has the authority to reinstitute the charge. The reason that's filed um, uh, and the judge's sort of authority to review the deferred prosecution agreement is that it requires a um, an exemption from the running of the speedy trial clock. Uh, in federal court, uh, barring an exception applying, you're entitled to go to trial within 70 days of the uh, being arrested, I mean being uh, indicted. Um, you get an extra 10 days if you're arrested and then not indicted yet, uh, or extra 30 days. So you... Um, so those, uh, there's, and then there's the good old standard indictment. Interestingly, there's been some suggestion about Senator Sessions, the new attorney general to be next week probably, uh, and his sort of um, disfavor on uh, deferred prosecution agreements. And, um, you know, he likes the old system, which was you either get charged or you don't. Uh, and I always say in that context, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it, which may mean that more companies may end up getting charged or having to enter guilty pleas or using subsidiaries to enter guilty pleas or whatever. So companies should be careful before they lobby on that type of issue. Then when you go over to the FCC, we have obviously it's a civil proceeding and uh, they also have uh They've created their own tools akin to the Justice Department because it was run by a former AUSA from New York for a while when they did this. And they put in uh, non-prosecution agreements and deferred prosecution agreements for individuals and companies, uh, depending on cooperation. And then they had, uh, they have their traditional authority is our cease and desist orders. In other words, to say that you will cease and desist from engaging in bribery uh, in in the future, but more importantly uh, is uh, some recognition and some payment of civil penalties or combination of civil penalties and disgorgement. Disgorgement, I think, has become the new hot issue and has a new Supreme Court case coming up this year 
on the statute of limitations application to disgorgement uh, because the April uh, FCPA pilot program instituted uh, made disgorgement a condition of uh, getting the benefits under the pilot program. So we've seen more interest, more in, uh, interest or focus on the disgorgement concept uh, going along with civil penalties. But uh, and then we have um, that sort of combination of tools. Now, still the SEC is wrestling with the issue of whether they can bring these cases in administrative hearings or whether they have to go to court. They got burned in court because they got a bad draw on a couple of uh, cases that they had. It went to Judge Leon in the D.C. courthouse, which is not a place you want to end up, either as a prosecutor or really any practicing lawyer, uh, speaking from experience, <laughs> to be honest with you. And uh, so they, they're they trying to do the administrative hearing uh, type of thing. Well, Richard Bistrong, um, just in case you didn't know. Yeah, Richard Bistrong, uh, well, we all have, I mean, we all were there with the SHOT Show case, but I actually uh, prosecuted cases and I had to do work with Judge Leon, and I can tell you it was a bizarre world. Um, But anyways, uh, so that, you know, that's sort of the range. Um, It's interesting to see uh, the SFO sort of dealing with it, but having, uh, you know, having a judge there. I I like the judicial oversight. You know, the real controversy in the U.S. is the, the, the ability to conduct judicial oversight when your only procedural hook is whether or not to exempt the um, deferred prosecution agreement under the speedy trial clock. And, you know, we if the courts really want to get involved, they should get a statute that authorizes them to or requires them to review this, just like uh, in the uh, UK. So we'll see what happens with that. Mike, I have only, this, you know, Tom, I have only, yeah, go ahead. This is Jay. I just wanted to uh, thank you for uh, answering that question. And my, my one quick follow-up is, um, what is the equivalent of a, a declination under SEC? Is that cease and dis- dismiss, or desist rather, or do is there also a form no. of declination? No, they have, a de- they have a non-prosecution agreement, which is weird, uh, but they, ha- they have a declination. You know, they're, they're not going to bring charges and all that stuff. They have a very similar... Uh, I don't know that they use the same terminology for it. Right, Frankly, I haven't been in a case where they I haven't been in a case where they haven't gotten involved. You know, the the uh, FCPA people there have an aggressive reputation. So um, I'm still looking for my first declination from the SEC. Um, but I, uh, I, I wanted to I mean, the comments have been really uh, terrific and I wanted to only sort of highlight a couple of issues that I thought were really, um, really, I thought creative and well done by the lawyers um, and it paid off. Uh, and I hate to use that expression paid off, but I thought the, um, the use of Lord Gold as a compliance consultant by, um, and, you know, his reputation uh, is quite good in the United States because of his prior involvement. I think he was the monitor for the BAE case. And there was a lot of fighting over the monitor in that case, if everybody recalls. Uh, 
you know, getting a monitor assigned to it. But the use of Lord Gold here as a compliance advisor and the over, and I didn't realize that he oversaw the internal investigation, which you want to talk about lending credibility and pointing out the importance of an independent, you know, no holds barred type of internal investigation. I think that's probably a pretty good person to use to represent that. And I think it helped uh, Rolls-Royce avoid a compliance monitor because who needs a compliance monitor if you have Lord Gold? Um, and I thought there was a lot of deference on the U.S. part to the SFO and deference to, I think, the SFO had deferred to the U.S. in many other cases, and I think the prosecutors in the U.S. were paying uh, homage and respect to the SFO to say thank you by sort of letting them lead every aspect of this and also sort of lead the resolution, I think, by employing Lord Gold in the way that they did. The other interesting aspect to me was, uh, and I, I think the facts are really important on voluntary disclosure issues. These guys did not get voluntary disclosure credit. And as you said, there were press reports or internet postings that caused the SFO to look at this. And to me, um, you know, when we sit there and we find something out in a company and we're sort of wrestling with voluntary disclosure and a, a press report comes out and somehow, and I've had this happen in one case, and the DOJ prosecutors are reading the Wall Street Journal or reading whatever, and they see the press report, and boom, you're out. You lose voluntary disclosure uh, credit if you don't beat the press report. That's pretty tough. And, um, you know, that you could have press reports that are not credible, but, you, you know, if they are credible, boy, you better – people better be nimble because losing that here – I think Rolls-Royce lost millions of sterling and dollars uh, with the resolution. Um, the, and then the last point uh, I wanted to say is not only, as, as Jonathan, I think you articulated incredibly well, does this reestablish, and Tom has written about this very well as, as much, about the uh, international enforcement regime that's coming into, into focus here, um, this also shows, I guess, my sort of pet peeve that if you watch the resources and where the resources are going, you're going to see production from it. So we now have an FCPA unit that doubled in size. We now have AUSAs out in the field that are more comfortable dealing with the issue and learn by bringing a case or being involved in a case. And now you have three full squads of FBI agents. And it, to me, this is the culmination of uh, building resources and how they allocated the resources to, and we've talked about this before, devoting to training other prosecutors, investigators around the world. Now we're seeing the fruit is, is finally coming you know, out on the tree. And, uh, and I think that is really a big message here that the department told us they were going to do this and they've done it. And now everybody's like throwing their hands up going, Whoa, they're so aggressive. Is this the end of the Obama administration? You know, everybody wrapping up cases. No, this may be the new, the new norm. 
And if it is, uh, watch out because more and more countries are going to get more and more involved. Um, so that, that I, I just thought, uh, the end, you know, the SFO told us going back to 2012, they were investigating this case. And the longer it went on to me meant the bigger the case was getting, um, because it took so long to resolve it. So those are my thoughts, but the DPAs, uh, I think are really well done, well crafted. And I think, you know, this is going to be led from the SFO sort of calling the shots on how the compliance program and the remediation is working, uh, down, uh, down the road with the report and Lord Gold sort of over, overseeing it. I think, Tom, if I can pitch in, I think Mike raises a point on the almost return of investment that I've not seen anybody raise in the materials I've seen on this already, which, you know, thinking aloud here is is a really intriguing point, I think, from a, a UK perspective. Now, we've talked in these podcasts before about the way in which the SFO is getting funding for these cases. It has to apply for what's called blockbuster finance. So it has to effectively do almost a business case for the prosecution. I think if you, the government, invest X in this case, I have a chance of a return of Y. Return doesn't have to be pure monetary terms. It can be public policy reasons. But from memory, and I may be inaccurate, I think the blockbuster application to run this case was 25 million sterling. And if you look at the numbers, obviously they've got their, if it was gambling, they've got their original stake back because Rolls-Royce have agreed to underwrite the SFO's costs. And in addition, they've scored, what, almost 500 million sterling for that 25 million investment. So... If you're the Treasury Department of the UK government, you're going to be much more likely to offer blockbuster funding next time David Green comes knocking on your door. Because the rate, you know, the return on investment is huge. And we can all have these arguments over whether governments and prosecutors should or not take these things into account. But the world we're in at the moment is they do. And this might also, of course, have implications with the Trump administration, like we've been saying, that if they determine that the rate of return on investment in prosecution is this substantial, then it might mean all the things Mike's been saying, better trained prosecutors, more of them, more research capability, more intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So, Jonathan, you've given us a new TLA, uh, ROI, which is now return on investigation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Matt Kelly, who has uh, joined us uh, off the disabled list, getting ready for the Super Bowl in Houston next week. Uh, Matt, uh, can maybe you uh, bring us home with uh, some of your thoughts? Sure. Uh, first, um, I apologize for my voice, everybody. I'm coming off of a head cold. My very first thought, I think we owe Jonathan a death for talking about the face-to-face scrubbing, because now I have an image in my head of scrubbing of the face as an employee <laughs> disciplinary action. <laughs> great idea for many companies. Um, but I was most struck that for the SFO, this really seemed 
I don't want to say it was a U.S.-like style uh, settlement, but the fact is, if Rolls-Royce had been a U.S. company doing this sort of extensive misconduct, we probably would have wound up with an agreement that looks a lot like what we just saw. Um, and there's a certain international standardization of really big telling uh, settlements when we have really big cases of misconduct, which we did. And it doesn't matter that it's the U.K. or the U.S., um, I tend to be a bit more skeptical about the international cooperation and the internal interest in pursuing these cases. I agree with what Mike said, that there is certainly a payoff in the investment here, and I think there's an appetite at lower levels in the U.S. to keep pursuing these cases. I have yet to see a statement from a high-level person in the new Justice Department mostly because we don't have any high-level people in the Trump administration quite yet, to say what they want to do. Um, I think there's a lot of credit or to the idea that we're going to see more declinations, more non-prosecutions for companies if they cooperate and they give us individuals. How is that really going to translate into international cooperation, which is going to be necessary for big cases, for big corruption, which is still out there. Um, when I looked at this case, I counted at least seven different international enforcement agencies that were collaborating here in one way or another. Um, the word that comes to my mind is there's a sort of a tentative agreement right now. We'll all keep holding hands and marching forward on this, but what happens if Theresa May does take the United Kingdom in a very different light-touch, low-tax, regulatory and enforcement world after they, Britain has left the EU. Who is going to succeed David Green? What if that person is more in that line of thought? Um, what if we have a very fractious sort of Justice Department squabbling with Donald Trump and his tweets about whatever might come to his mind? Because we already see that tension in other parts of the federal government. Now, Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump seem to be buddy-buddy on many issues. I think they have a good rapport. But there's rapport between the White House and the Justice Department, the Justice Department and its lower levels, and the AUSAs, who I think their hearts are in the right place. But there's still an awful lot of uncertainty and an awful lot of ways that this could be – this could go differently than what we think of and what we've seen up until now. I'm, I'm really great, grateful that we've seen – this sort of SFO case, but I think there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot of compliance officers are still well within rights to say this is a good blow for effective compliance, but is this going to be the standard? We don't know. That's probably all I can say before my voice fades, but um, if anybody wants to scrub my face on this because they disagree, go, go right ahead. <laughs> So, Mike, uh, you are our only panelist who actually knows uh, soon-to-be Attorney General Sessions. Any ideas on his thoughts on uh, global or international cooperation? You know, uh, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to upset any. Uh, I don't think he's going to do as much as people worry about in terms of major changes. I actually think the most interesting appointment was uh, his appointment of a deputy attorney general to take Sally Yates' place is a guy by the name of Rod Rosenstein, who's the U.S. attorney in Maryland. 
and before that was a uh, in the Bush administration and was kept on by the Obama administration because of his just I mean he if you want a word to of integrity to apply to a prosecutor there's not anybody better than Ron Rosenstein I mean the Obama administration kept him in Maryland for eight years he never asked him to leave and uh, I know him personally, and I can tell you he's he's far far more ethical and a better lawyer than I am, and he is a terrific uh, person who I think is not going to upset the apple cart here, folks. Uh, he is a tough, tough prosecutor. Maryland, in particular, has um, gone after healthcare fraud and healthcare cases and prosecuted individual doctors criminally. And Rod is a, a tough-as-nails prosecutor, so, and he gets along well with people, very well-respected on both sides of the aisle. So Sessions did a smart thing, which was to bring in sort of the consummate uh, insider uh, who knows how the Justice Department works. So I can tell you across the board at the department, people have sort of, you know, there's a big sigh of relief as to who's going to be the number two, because the deputy attorney general really has a lot of power. And all of the, like the criminal division and the fraud section all report up through the line, and eventually things got to be approved at the deputy attorney general level. The cases are signed off. The policy statements, for example, on the pilot program, you know, has to be approved by the attorney general, deputy attorney general. If it goes with that approval up to the attorney general, it's rarely, if ever, touched. Um, and the attorney general rarely, if ever, gets involved in those types of issues. So I, um, I don't think we're going to see as much change. Uh, I think Matt's point is we may see some more declinations. I do think, and I've said that I do think that the, that we will probably see declinations as opposed to a 50% discount given to companies that really meet the requirements of the pilot program. I think that may be tinkered with or changed a little bit, but that's about it. Um, I mean, and I, I think it's a really welcome uh, sign. Uh, now, of course, like Matt also said, you know, who knows what Trump will tweet one day about a settlement if it gets on his radar screen um, or whatever. Who knows what he'll say? Um, but I don't think it'll filter down to the department to that level. Of course, you know, I, we also have to say that the department now is supposed to be conducting a voter fraud investigation relating to three to five, I think it was three to five million illegal votes. Um, so who the hell knows what will happen. Um, but I'm, if there's anybody that can push back with reality, it's going to be Rod Rosenstein. You know, Tom, one other quick point. Um, I agree with what Mike said, and I did see that one of the deputy AG's assistants, Trevor McFadden, who is going to be overseeing the criminal division in these cases, he's another one who's got all the right resume. He worked with a deputy AG in the Bush administration. He was an assistant USA um, in, I think, Washington. He worked at Baker McKenzie, like just the sort of background a compliance officer would like to see and will make you feel comfortable that this person now on the prosecuting side feels our pain. And I think that one of the big questions is going to be more that the administration in the Trump world, all of these minions 
these are going to be good people. The wild card is always going to be Trump himself trampling around the White House and Washington and the Twitterverse saying Lord knows what. I don't know how much his trampling and incoherence might affect these kind of cases. I, I'm hopeful it won't be much. And there are a lot of good people who will be working under sessions that compliance community can feel comfortable with. But you're always going to have this wild card at the top, and Lord knows what might happen there. So, gentlemen, unfortunately, uh, we're near the top of the hour, but I wondered if uh, anybody wanted to close with some final thoughts. And maybe, Jay, we could start with you. Sure, Tom. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, we've gotten uh, a multitude of different views today, uh, you know, dealing with the implications of this global Rolls-Royce matter and, you know, trying to look at the tea leaves and figuring out where it's going to fall. Um, it's still way too early. So, um, we can either be glass half empty or glass half full. And, um, you know, I, I, I would like to echo Matt's thought that uh, we're not going to know what this FCPA world is going to look like uh, until we see a tweet from uh, the real POTUS. So <laughs> I guess I would just confirm that there's indecision out there. Uh, but I think the way I read this case is that there's a, a lot of hope for the uh, global community. And uh, to reiterate what I said before, if there is a loss of funding or clout with the SEC and the DOJ, um, I feel pretty good that there'll be other people there to pick up the mantle. Michael? All right. Mr. Kelly. Oh no! Sorry about that. So wait, sorry about that. Um, I uh, I only have uh, one comment to make, which is uh, all those predictors of doom. Uh, I my kids are all all worried about the new administration. I tell them uh, we've been through worse. At least I hope we've been through worse. Uh, and I, I felt very close to my years growing up with the Nixon administration and watching uh, some of the actions. And I thought very clearly about the firing of Archibald Cox and the night that that occurred. And uh, um, sort of the, there, there is a, a pessimism out there, but I said, we've been through worse and this, con this country has rebounded. Uh, that being said, I do think we should look at a constitutional amendment to allow Obama to come back, but who knows? Um, and I, I'm sorry to be so partisan, but uh, it's a tough time these days. So, Mr. Kelly from uh, Cambridge. Yeah, uh, I just want to give a shout out to the Office of uh, Special Counsel, I believe it is, uh, in the federal government. I don't know if people saw this, but essentially that office this week gave a pretaliation warning to Donald Trump himself when uh, this is the office in charge of protecting federal employees who are blowing the whistle on their own uh, agency where they might see misconduct or fraud there. And so amid all of Donald Trump's clamping down on all communications by the EPA and the Interior Department and various others, uh, the Office of Special Counsel sent out an alert reminding all employees that you still have the right to speak out about whistleblower misconduct if you see it. Um, it is a not so subtle, but not entirely pointed reminder 
that you cannot slap a retaliation warning on employees in the federal government. I'm not sure that Donald Trump knew that. I'm sure he would not like it. I have seen other non-disclosure agreements he has forced on people in his private sector world, and they are vast and extensive. And, of course, retaliation for us at the public company world that is uh, also against SEC whistleblower rules. So uh, I I think a small bit of credit to that small agency I was not really aware of all that much for stepping up and reminding everybody that as much as the president may be a blowhard, he can only blow so hard before whistleblower retaliation might step into play. So you still have protections if you're out there. And uh, it was good for them to speak up and remind people of that. And I I would just like to end by uh, noting that yesterday Roy Snell called Matt Kelly the most humorous uh, commentator in compliance. So, uh, gentlemen, with that, um, thanks very much. And it's been a great podcast. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. It would help in the rankings. Also, if you'd like to pose any questions to our panel, please uh, shoot me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.